0: Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Tanner Wade, the vicar here at St. Paul's in DePere. Welcome to Bible class this morning on this snowy and blustery St. Louis morning. Uh, Welcome to everyone who is with us today in our gym. And a special welcome to all who are listening in the St. Louis area on AM 850 KFUO and worldwide at KFUO.org. As is our usual practice, we'll be looking at the appointed lessons for next week, which is the first Sunday in Lent. But before we begin, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you today as people who are wrought with the temptations of this age, a people who cannot of our own power and might be righteous before you. We pray that you would keep our hearts repentant as we approach this Lenten season, that we would use it as a time not to glorify ourselves or our own pious ambitions, but a time in which we remember the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf. A time where we look to you as our refuge, our hope, and our salvation. That on account of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, you would grant us a steadfast faith in your promises and would keep us mindful of our own unworthiness as we face the temptations of this day in the days to come, that we would faithfully proclaim the joyous news of the resurrection and the righteousness that is credited to us on Christ's account. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As a reminder for those of you who are here with us today, we do have handouts on the side of the gym there, and they will have the lessons that we'll be going through on them. The uh, First lesson we're gonna look at is not the Old Testament lesson, but rather the appointed Psalm. And we're going to look at that first because of how it relates to the gospel lesson for the first Sunday in Lent. Uh, A little bit about Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is the appointed psalm. And uh, it's interesting because there's really three main points of emphasis. We have an opening statement made by the psalmist that discusses what he confesses to be true about God. And then he tells his hearers why they ought to believe the same, confess the same about God. And then finally, we hear what God says back to those who are faithful to him. So to begin at Psalm 91, verse 1, we read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And as we go through Psalm 91, you'll notice there are a lot of these couplets, these pairings, Things that are similar, but just a little bit different that are used by the psalmist to describe the protection that God gives us and gives those who are faithful. So to start with, he talks about the shelter of the Most High. The Most High is a Hebrewism for God, for Yahweh, the Lord. And the shelter is a hiding place, a secret place, a place where if someone is looking for you, they cannot find you. And then he continues in verse 1, that he will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And maybe to us, we might take this for granted, but in a desert culture, a shadow was very literally a necessary means of protection, dealing with the heat and the elements. We see then him continue in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress... And my refuge and my fortress, which may call us back to Psalm 46, which is the textual basis for Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is actually the appointed hymn of the day for Lenten 1. But we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. Verse 2, I will say to the Lord my refuge and my fortress. It was interesting when I was looking these things up in English, they maybe don't sound all that different. But a refuge in the Hebrew is a place that is sought out for protection, similar to that hiding place or the shelter of the Most High that we read about in verse 1. It's a place that you run into in order to be protected from whatever is coming after you. And then a fortress is very literally a mountain stronghold, something that through the natural elements or through what has been built up, you are already behind and can stand firm behind. And so again, we see that kind of pairing of two things that talk about God's protection in similar manners, but a little bit different. And now the psalmist in verse 3 moves on to addressing his hearer, And he says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. That snare of a fowler is simply a a bird trap. It's the thing you can't see. You don't know you're actually entangled in until you try and get out of it. And it wraps around your leg or your body or whatever it may grab hold to and traps you inside of it without you ever knowing that you were in danger. And he will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. And again, we see this pairing. We went from the trap that you don't know anything about until it's too late to pestilence very literally is the thing which is going to drive you out, the thing which you know is coming and you need to get away from. So you have the same duality that we've seen in the first couple of verses of protection offered in similar circumstances, yet just a little bit different. In verse 4, we read the psalmist say that God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge and again pinions these are the wings that cause flight for a bird the outer wings the ones on the the edge of a bird that make it fly and his wings that I think is self-explanatory enough those are what he a bird would wrap what it's protecting around the bone structure that he would protect you with. And we continue in verse 5 with the results that come, the reason why the psalmist is exhorting his hearer to trust in the protection of the Lord. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. At night, you might not know what's out there, but if you're in a desert culture, you might be hearing something. Whether it's a person or a a tribe coming to attack you and your people, or an animal that might present danger to you and your family, but in a desert culture, you would not necessarily be able to see, unless there was a very bright moon, what was out there. But again, you would hear it. It would cause you great fear. And then the arrow that flies by day, that's... Pretty clearly, someone who's trying to attack you. The thing that is right in front of you that delivers an attack. And again, we have in verse 6, Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the, de- the destruction that wastes at noonday. Continuing into verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand out at your right hand, but it will not come near you. The psalmist is emphasizing that for those like himself who trust in the Lord, there is no need to fear that which is unseen and that which is plain is day. That the one who trusts in the Lord is not subject to the normal fears of mankind, but has a sense of resolve, a sense of protection that can come from nothing else but God. Nothing else but the shelter of of the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty, and we get into verse 8, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, that those who trust in the Lord, their protection means that when everything is going wrong around them, they look to God as their refuge, and they are strengthened, and they are protected. Because, in verse 9, as the psalmist says, You have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. You know, it's, it's interesting because we sometimes take for granted the safety that we have as Americans, and even in the 21st century, across the world. It may not be something we necessarily consider on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's why this psalm is included uh, with Lent 1 with the Gospel lesson we're going to get to in just a moment, because as Luther says in his small catechism, without Christ, we would not be able to last yet a single hour, because there is one who does stalk us, one who will see in the Gospel count, tempts not only Jesus, but tempts us, and if the answer is only ourselves, well then We have the same fears that everyone else does. The pestilence by night, the arrows by noonday, the traps we see and the traps we don't even know we're in. And as we get to verse 9, we see the psalmist say, Why do you have this protection? Why is this result of protection, this trust in God, yours? Well, it's simply because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, continuing into verse 10, the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Why is this result yours? Because you have trusted in the one who is the only true refuge and fortress in the face of fear, in the face of death. As we get to verse 11, we talk about for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. For those of us who are in the gym this morning, you can see that on your sheet that's highlighted in blue. And you can see that it's going to correspond with what the devil quotes to Jesus in the gospel lesson. So I just want you guys to kind of keep note of that, verse 11 there. And then again in verse 12, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And again, we will see the devil quote this to Jesus in the temptation narrative. And it's kind of, I didn't realize this at first, but when I was studying this psalm, at first glance, it kind of seems trivial, right? You're not going to strike your foot against a stone. That What's God saying? Is he just saying, you know, an angel's going to prevent you from stubbing your toe? Well, no, the word for strike here is to literally strike or smite or inflict serious or even fatal injury. It's the type of stumble you might take if you were in a mountainous desert culture. And if you think about what... Uh, what that might look at, you have steep hills or steep mountains that you're often going up or traveling across. And there's probably no path at all, but if there is one, it's a very narrow path. And so, to strike your foot against a stone is not a matter of just stubbing one's toe, or even uh, having an inconvenience, or even a kind of moderate injury, but it very literally could lead to a serious even fatal injury type of injury that might occur if you fell down the mountain you're just trying to climb up and then we finish with the second section of what the psalmist is trying to tell to his hearers in verse 13 you will tread on the lion and the adder the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot and again this is the final highlight that the psalmist gives of his own account to his here of what that protection is like. Those are animals that would be associated with attacking you. An adder would be a poisonous snake akin to like a cobra or something that would inflict serious harm against you. But now it's really interesting we get to verse 14 because we get to the third and kind of final section of this psalm and verses 14 through 16 are actually not included in the lectionary reading. For next Sunday but I included them for our study here today because I think when we got just three verses to go we can finish off the psalm and see it in its full full context and the speaker of transitions from being the psalmist to being what God says about those who are faithful himself we read in verse 14 because he holds fast to me in love I will deliver him I will protect him Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Here you have God responding, confirming what the psalmist has just told his hearer that he, in fact, does hold or it will deliver you, protect you. He answers us. He is with us in times of trouble. He rescues us, and he shows us his salvation. And as we prepare for the Lenten season, most people know Lent is the time where maybe someone gives up something for 40 days, or we just don't say hallelujahs in church anymore. But really, Lent, the core of Lent, is not about what we do, but rather it's a its a penitential, a, A repentant reflection. A reflection on what we know is coming on Good Friday. And yet at the same time, it's also a reflection on the joy that will be coming to us on Easter morning. The joy that comes to us every morning for us, those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 91 as a whole is very much about an attack. And specifically what our defense is. Against that which would attack us, him who would attack us, the evil one, the foe, the devil, and the one being protected would otherwise always be in life-threatening danger. Each one of those little pairings, if we look at uh, as how they flow, none of them are little things. None of them are things that are just minor inconveniences or maybe a, a, a little roadblock on the way to success. Now, these are all fatal attacks. These are all things that are meant to do serious harm. And the one being protected would otherwise be in life-threatening danger, yet he is not because he is reliant upon his protector for his very life. And the psalmist makes clear in the first two verses, that opening section, that his protector is the Most High, the Almighty. Almighty Shaddai in the Hebrew. It's, it signifies that which is totally sufficient, that which there is nothing beyond, or that which nothing could be better than. The trust that we are encouraged to have in Psalm 91 comes from the fact that our refuge and our fortress, our protection in the face of deadly trials is the one who is sufficient, the one whom nothing can be better than, the one whom nothing is beyond. So I'll pause real quick for just a moment to see if there's any questions before we kinda dive into the the gospel reading. No? Alright. So if you look at the gospel reading, Uh, Luke 4, 1 to 13, it's a fairly well-known account. It's the temptation account, and this has been used for at least several hundred years, if not a millennia, on the first Sunday in Lent. And it's kind of obvious, if you start looking at it, why that might be, is Lent traditionally in the church from the earliest days was a time of fasting. And we read in verse 2, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. That he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he ate nothing. But, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, if you look at the outline of how this pericope, or this section, uh, Luke 4, 1-13, how it flows, I want you guys, to, we'll start at the first section, it's just going to be verses 1 and 2. And this kind of sets up the rest of the account. It, it lets us know... What was going on? And just before this, it should be noted that we have Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3. And so when it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that is very literally the river in which he was baptized. He is being led by the Holy Spirit from that baptism to the wilderness, If you think, again, of that mountainous, uh, uh, I guess, desert climate, you have this river valley in the Jordan. And then on either side of it, you have these very steep, very abrupt mountains, or you could call them hills, maybe. Very rocky, still a desert, arid climate. But when he goes up, he's li- very literally going into both the desert, but also, uh, you could say, almost going, going into the mountains, going into the, the wilderness, And uh, we continue in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And again, remember I said this section kind of just sets up what is going on, what kind of the state of Jesus is at this point in terms of we we're given a very literal bodily need that he was hungry. And that uh, term, and he ate nothing in verse 2, found it kind of interesting. It's actually a double negative, but in this case, in the Greek, the double negative does not cancel out uh, the negation, but rather it intensifies it. So it's literally, didn't eat nothing for 40 days. And that's how the tradition of fasting during Lent began. They used this section of Scripture. And he became hungry, establishes the state Christ is in. Then we get to the temptation account, the second kind of section. And if you look at this, is almost like kind of an outline. And we get to verse 3. And the devil begins the t- temptation of Jesus with what you could say is the obvious, considering we've just read that he ate nothing for... 40 days, and the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil is telling Christ, well, make food for yourself. If you're hungry, and it's interesting, the devil starts it out even with a kind of an insult before you even get started. If you are the Son of God. I said this occurs right after the baptism of Jesus. What do we know about the baptism of Jesus? Of Jesus, Well, in the Lucan account, we have in chapter 3, verse 22, the voice of God from heaven telling Jesus, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So the devil's response of, if you are the son of God, is an attack on what has just been said by God at Christ's baptism. The devil looks for the thing which is most obvious. It's the temporal temptations we all face. All of us have had moments where we're really hungry, probably not 40 days of eating nothing hungry, but there's also all other types of temporal temptations, things like clothes, and cars, and houses, where we're going to maybe send our kids to school, or what we ought to do when the bills are tight. But Jesus answers him directly, and his quote is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I'm going to read it in the full context of that verse. So Jesus' response is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, we read, and he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The devil tempts Jesus with the needs of the body, and Jesus responds with that which actually gives life. The word of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's the common Hebrewism, The Debar HaYahweh. And then we get to the second temptation in verse five. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. And here we see the devil tempting Jesus with the things of the world it's the power that we so often try to strive after, the, the might we think we could exhibit in the world. And it's the end goal many of us sometimes are tempted to work so desperately towards. And it's interesting that when he says, showed him all the kingdoms of the world at the moment of a, in, the, in a moment of time, Uh, One of the things I found really interesting as I was going through that is all the kingdoms of the world, it's just another way of saying the known world. So obviously that may not include uh, what we know now as much of Asia or Australia or even North America, or it might. There is some ambiguity here, but I just thought it was interesting that another way to have put that with the way the Greek works is the known world. And here again, we have Jesus's response. And again, he goes to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we read in verse 8 of Luke 4, Jesus answered him, answered the devil, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil tempts Jesus with all these things and says in verse 7, If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus' response is again very clear, that it is written straight out of God's word, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you shall you serve." But again, I think it's important to look at that response in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Starting at verse 10 of Deuteronomy 6, we read, "'And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And it's interesting because Jesus' rebuttal is a... Verse that is dealing directly with the getting of things or the getting of a land or the getting of property that you did not do. And that's, in a sense, what the devil offers him. I will just give you this power. I will give you these kingdoms. It's not in the devil's mind. It's not what you've done, even though we know it is God who builds all things. But in the devil's mind, he's saying, well, I'll just give them to you. And so what does Jesus go back to? Well... Let's look at a time when God says he's going to give you things that you did not get. And it's not the devil you worship. No. And as Deuteronomy 6.13 says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by by his name you shall swear. The devil is trying to present a reality that tempts Jesus into denying the true reality of where power and even the kingdoms of the world come from. Whose they are. And so what does Jesus say? Well, he goes right back to what God says about that. To fear Yahweh, the Lord, your God. And then in verse 9, we get to the third and final temptation. At least in this Narrative, And and he, the devil, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and this is where we go back to Psalm 91. Look at the the highlights on either side of the, the handout. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And in verse 11, we read the devil tell him on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a a stone. It's interesting that the devil quotes this psalm. And you think about it, this is the ultimate temptation, right? He is causing, or he is asking Jesus to doubt that God really does have his back, that God really is protecting him. And again, he phrases it with that same insult he started the temptations with, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. The devil tries to take the the purpose of Psalm 91, the comfort and the protection that Psalm 91 and the psalmist in Psalm 91, that God relays back at the end of Psalm 91, tries to take those and like he often does, pervert it or distort it so that, Instead of trusting in what God has given us and what God has given you, no, you're supposed to doubt it because aren't you supposed to find out? How are you going to know if you don't find out? He's daring Christ to put that psalm literally to the test. And then Jesus' answer is a little bit different than the first two. It's not, it is written, but rather, it is. Is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here we have something that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That we've been talking about. Jesus has been answering. It is written. God's word is written. And now all of a sudden, we have Jesus assorting, asserting his authority a little bit. It is said, I literally. I'm saying this. And again he quotes from Deuteronomy and Jesus answered him we read in Luke 4:12 it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's the last of the narrative account that we read in the final section of verse 13 talks about the last bit of the outline so to speak of the pericope that when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time now, there's a couple things i want to highlight uh, one of those is in the second temptation in verses six and seven uh to you i will the devil says to jesus to you i will give up all this authority and their glory For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. To me, it's interesting. I thought when I was reading this, and because I knew what the hymn of the day was for the first Sunday in Lent, A Mighty Fortress, I thought about the end of the first stanza of A Mighty Fortress, where we sing, Deep guile and great might are his, dread arms and fight. On earth is not His equal. That's the old evil foe we're describing in a mighty fortress. That is the devil. A lot of times, maybe sometimes we can gloss over that. But when at the end of stanza one, that's what we're saying about Satan. And in a sense, you see the devil trying to assert that. But before we get too far off or too worried, the other thing it made me think of was then the third or the second, third, And fourth chapters, or stanzas, I should say, of a mighty fortress. That with might of ours cannot be done, soon were our loss affected, but for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. Ask ye who is this? Jesus Christ it is, of Sabaoth Lord, there's none other God. He holds the field forever. One of the great things about uh, that hymn is that we do acknowledge that of our own doing, we cannot defeat the devil. That of our own doing and of our own power, the devil is not our equal, or rather we are not his equal. But then the whole rest of the hymn is a reminder of Psalm 91. Luther used Psalm 46 for the basis of it, but Psalm 91, with its similar themes of protection, refuge, and fortress, called to mind the same truths we know about our God. In stanza three, we sing, Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. This world's princess may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged. The deed is done. One little word can fell him. And in a reality, this is what we're seeing in the temptation narrative, that when you have God and Jesus, who is God himself, God incarnate, as we celebrate the manifestation of of Christ in Epiphany, as if you've been to services this morning, or maybe we'll go after this class study, we'll, we'll hear in Pastor Thomas's sermon on the Transfiguration, Jesus, who is literally God in the flesh, God made flesh, both 100% man and 100% God. He is the valiant one, the one whom God himself elected. And that's when I start to think about that protection. Because Jesus knew, in a sense, in order to give that protection to each one of us, in order for us to say that a mighty fortress is our God, the God we confess to believe, in order to say that, Jesus knew the pain and the suffering that he would have to endure. And the devil really taunts him with this in Luke 4. If you are the son of God... The God who says he's going to protect all those who call upon his name. The God who says, I will show you my salvation. If you are the son of God, how come you can't even protect yourself? But we know, not to skip a little too far ahead in the story, but we know at the end of Lent what's going to come. Our penitential reflection that we have during the Lenten season is never without the view of the joyous occasion of Easter morning. That's why we look at Lent as a time of reflection, not so that we try to spend 40 days maybe giving something up, probably unsuccessfully, or to be honest, or that we somehow beat ourselves down to remember how bad we are we know we are sinners but ultimately lent is a period of repentance penitential reflection because we know what comes at the end what happens after the 40 days that jesus christ is raised from the dead and that with one little word the devil is fallen. And that led me to verse four of our hymn of the day for next week, a mighty fortress stands afore. The word they stout they still shall let remain, nor any thanks have for it. He's by our side upon the plain, with his good gifts and spirit, and take they our life, goods, fame, child and wife. Though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. It's on the basis of Christ's steadfastness, including in the temptation narrative, in the temptation account that we read in Matthew and Luke and to a shorthanded degree in Mark. It is to that that we ultimately look, that faithfulness that Christ has because we know that we are not perfectly faithful. We know that we still have that protection from Psalm 91 because Christ is faithful. Not because we are perfect or we are without sin or even that we always remember to call on God first when trials and temptations fall us, but because we are forgiven. That in our confession, There's the response of, I forgive you of your sins. God says he forgives every single one of us. So I'll pause for just a moment as we get to the end of uh, the gospel lesson for next week. Are there any questions about maybe the first two sections here? You know, that's a great question, uh, Don, and uh, I'll repeat the question for those who are listening on the radio. Is there any significance that Psalm 91 verse 11 says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And the devil quotes Psalm 91 verse 11 by saying he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and leaves out in all your ways. So I actually did a little bit of research on this because I had the same thought. When you're looking at it, you go, that seems kind of interesting. Uh, And there's a a level of debate. No one knows the exact reason. Uh, There's some school of thought that it is, uh, you know, all your ways is literally all your ways, including whatever you're going through. And so by leaving it out, the devil could be trying to intentionally leave it out to make it seem as if that exact moment is the only thing that Psalm 91 applies to. That, that, you know, he's on the temple in Jerusalem, and that it's not in all your ways, but in this moment here, and that's it. Uh, there's some people who say we just don't simply have all the answers, and so to speculate would be, you know, a speculation at best. But yeah, that is a, a great question uh, as far as uh, why the devil leaves out kind of what you'd call part B of Psalm 91, verse 11. Uh, so I don't know if that's helped you, Don, or... All right, any other questions? Before we get on to the epistle lesson? And it's it's interesting because if you look at the epistle lesson, you might think, well, this takes on kind of a different note. The psalm is all about God being a refuge and a protection, and then the temptation is all about Jesus' resolute, his steadfastness, his faithfulness, that we know is done on our account. So why Romans 8? and technically it's eight B through 13. I included the first part of eight because it does actually kind of make a little bit more sense, I think, including the start of eight. But we read in Romans eight, or 10, sorry, I should say, Romans 8 to 13. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim and in the context of paul's letter paul has just been reasoning kind of negatively about whether the word of god is inaccessible or not this word of faith well and what does it say so paul's start to this section is that it says the word is near you it is accessible it's not something that is inaccessible, but rather it is near you in your mouth and in your heart. It's not unable to be known, but it's the very thing that Paul and the Old Testament and the Gospels proclaim this word of faith. And what Paul proclaims to the church in Rome is freely given to them in what God says in his word and through the Holy Spirit. And we get to verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's interesting that the uh, word confess uh, in the Greek, it's amalageo, which I don't know if I pronounced that completely correct, but I'll trust. Uh, I trust it was close enough for you who are here this morning, but it means to be of one mind. To acknowledge something as true and to proclaim it publicly. So what's Paul calling us to? Well, we're going to see in a little bit uh, the multi-faceted way this applies to the church in Rome. But one immediate thing is what you believe and what you say, they are in accordance with one another. That your confession through your mouth is what you believe in your heart. Those things cannot be different from one another. By the very nature of the word, to confess something would be to say something that you honestly believe to be true. So in verse 9, we says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, you cannot confess in terms of the way the word functions unless you do believe in your heart. So Paul is establishing there is no difference between what we proclaim and this faith that you hold on to, that you believe. And what is it that we confess? Well, Paul says it pretty clearly in verse 9, that Jesus is Lord. And in some sense, that is the summaration or summarization of the entire Christian confession. That Jesus is Lord. And then we get to verse 10, Romans 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And again, we see the highlight of what is in your heart and what comes out of your mouth. If you're confessing, it needs to be of one accord or one mind in accordance with each other. There's no half-hearted going through the motions, but rather you're stating what you honestly believe in your heart. And in verse 11, we read, "For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame." Well, this is Paul quoting himself actually in Romans 9:33, but that is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And Paul's trying to make the point that everyone who believes in the Lord, and as Paul's pointed out thus far, central to that is the confession that Jesus is Lord, will not be shamed. In a sense, Paul is reminding us that there is one word, the word of faith, and that's the word that saves you, not by what you do, but rather by what God has done and what is proclaimed to us in the Gospels. And then we get to the kind of second facet of what that confession means, that everything is in one mind or in the same accordance with one another. In verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And again, Paul is hitting at the singularity of the confession. The church in Rome had a lot of tension. There was a lot of strife between those who were Jews by birth, who knew the Old Testament scriptures, and those who were Gentiles. And Paul, told several times throughout Romans, makes it clear that this word that he proclaims, this gospel, is not something either side need to be ashamed of, but it's the power of salvation for all to believe first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so by referring to the Jews and the Greeks as having no distinction, Paul is reminding them that they regardless of ethnicity in Christ have one confession that they are in one mind in accordance with one another. That there is no distinction between the Jew And the Greek and that might seem a little mundane or maybe not that big a deal, but this was a huge deal in the first century. And so Paul is really hitting at one of the major causes of division and strife that was present uh, not only in the Roman church, but in churches throughout the known world at the time. And that same Lord Jesus is Lord of all. By confessing that Jesus is Lord, you're saying that Jesus is is the Lord of all people, and furthermore, that he bestows his riches on all who call on him. There can never be a distinction, a better or worse. There is one category. It's that we are humans, that we are sinners, and that we have Jesus as Lord. And the same Lord is Lord of all. And then this pericope or section ends for the first Sunday in Lent with verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here Paul is quoting the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 32, and reminding the church in Rome that all who call upon that Lord, that one Lord, the Lord, that is the Lord of your confession, the confession that Jesus is Lord All who call upon his name will be saved. And it made me think back to that end of Psalm 91, that for those who call upon him, God will answer, and he will show them his salvation. And again, you have this kind of, I guess, reflection at the start of Lent of the salvation we know we are going to see. We're going to see in Easter, but there's a lot of repentance that happens in Lent. Repentance because we know the great sacrifice that's going to occur on Good Friday. And so it's interesting that I think on the first Sunday of Lent, we have this focus of confidence. The Psalm 91 is a reminder that God is the refuge in the the fortress, that he is the hiding place and the shelter for those who are being attacked. In the Lucan account of the temptation, we see that Jesus remains steadfast when we know that the father of mankind, or the first man, Adam, when he was tempted by the devil, with, did God really say? And Jesus responds to Essentially, the question, did God really say you are the Son of God, is yes, and I am, because it is said. So you really have kind of a a confident start to Lent, which is maybe not how we always think about approaching Lent or going into Lent. But then to highlight that, we have this epistle, Romans 10, where we read, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it kind of puts the entirety of the Lenten season into perspective. So that's what I would encourage you as we, as we go forward into this Lenten season. It is a time to be penitential, to be repentant, to be reflective. But that can never be without the great view of the confidence that we have in the God who is our refuge and our fortress, the God who did... Stay faithful in the face of temptation, the God who did die for each and every one of you, and then the God who on Easter morning rises from the dead and is truly the salvation for mankind. And it's interesting, right after this pericope, in Romans ten fourteen to 17, we read, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who, in him of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then finishes that section with, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we read our pericope for next week, Romans 10, 8 to 13, in light of that, that faith comes from that gospel that not only did Paul proclaim, but countless others have proclaimed. The gospel that is proclaimed to the world in God's word. And in that hearing, we hear the word of Christ and you will be saved. Well, we've got about three minutes left, so I'm going to open it up for just a few questions. We didn't get quite to the Old Testament uh, lesson, the appointed Old Testament lesson, Deuteronomy 26, for next week. But uh, I guess we'll just have to kind of leave that one for another time. But are there any questions before we wrap up with a word of prayer? No. All right. Well, let's uh, bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord... We are confident in our rock, in our refuge, in our salvation, the salvation you have shown us through the word of faith, through the word of Christ, that all would come to a saving faith in that wonderful proclamation of the good news. We pray that as we approach this Lenten season, we do so truly repentant, truly reflective, but also truly confident in the assurance of our salvation, our eternal protection from you, O Lord, the one who is our refuge and fortress. We pray all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.